You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon, reporting remotely for WFHB. This is Don Guerra. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, May 9th, 2022. Later in the program, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to covering prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. More in today's headlines. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Strike Mike, voices from the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition in light of their strike against Indiana University. But first, your daily headlines. the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting on May 4th, County Assessor Judy Sharp addressed the public's concern about the increasing property value assessments. Everybody's went up. Um, We did, I did, I crunched some numbers. uh, We crunched some numbers Monday and actually it's something like 80% of the parcels in Monroe County did go up. They went up all over the world, all over the place. It could just been a few percent. It could be hundreds of percents. It just depended on where you were. It is the market. This isn't something that, that we are doing, you know, in-house Monroe County isn't sitting around thinking about uh, raising, raising assessments. It is the market. Every, each and every one of us knows, um, What's happening in our streets, you can see there's bidding wars. There's very little um, inventory out there. And what when something goes on the market, it, uh, what I'm hearing right now from realtors, people are bringing cash offers to the table. And so uh, there was a good article. Uh, uh, one of the quotes was, if you think you have 250000 to spend on a house, you better have two seventy-five in cash. And that's scary. Um, it's not going down. Uh, next year, we're already we're already working in next year, and next year is even up more. So, <clears throat> one thing I want to I want to tell the public out there, and you all understand this, we did put in we did put on about one point nine billion with a B new assessed valuation, highest we've ever done. That's the market. <clears throat> the paper sort of got it wrong when they said the uh, hospital is nine hundred million. It will be. We only put 90 million on the hospital this year. That's all written off. So out of that 1.9 billion is only about 100 million. That's the hospital. It will be close to 900 million when it's all finished. But we just write that off. So we never even think about that. Um, So that was just new value. It's all of this. um, This. New construction, every place you look downtown, there's great big, huge cranes. Uh, Where I live out um, out, uh, south of town, sitting at the house yesterday, and I heard this huge noise, and I looked out, and it was this humongous crane coming up from the road down below me. Now, I live in the county. (laughs) I can't get to this house. It's under construction. It's got um, walls around, you know, great big. But it's a McMansion. And they're being built all over. And when you have to bring in a crane like you see downtown, 
there goes my values even more next year. Um, this is happening to all of us. Uh, the good news is, hopefully, um, tax rates will go down a little bit next year. Sharp explained that the property value assessments are law. Commissioner Julie Thomas commented. Appreciate the explanation. And uh, it's important to remember that um, housing values that, that are higher usually means a lower tax rate. If you go to a county west of us and the, and the assessed value is much lower on average properties, you're going to find a much higher tax rate. So, um, yeah, it's if, if everybody's have, or most people's um, values have gone up, um, wait, wait for the tax bill before you panic, for sure. Treasurer Jessica McClellan reminded the public of the approaching tax deadline and gave suggestions for how and when to pay them. I'm here this morning because we're about, we're less than, uh, we're about six days away from the tax deadline. So taxes are due on May 10th. That's Tuesday of next week. And I'm here to remind everybody um, to pay and how they can pay. They can pay online, by phone, um, we have a drop box, but the drop box is great. It's right outside the north door. So if you want to come in person and, you're the, and you have your check and your coupon, you can put it in an envelope and put it in the drop, drop box and we will mail a receipt. Um, or you can come in person and, then, or, and you can mail it through the mail. Let me go back to mailing it through the mail. We go by postmark. So if you put it in the mail and it's postmarked by May 10th, it'll be on time. And then talking about coming in person, um, coming in person is definitely an option. We, we've been open since June of last year and um, just want people to be aware that parking is not very easy downtown this time of year, that IU graduation is this weekend. So Friday, parking is going to be a complete zoo. Maybe Monday and Tuesday, it will actually clear out a little bit and you might actually have better luck on those days. But we hate to see people stressing out over parking and trying to get their taxes paid at the same time. So remember, online, by phone, by mail, Dropbox, and all that information is on your bill. And the, Tuesday, and the due date is Tuesday next week, May 10th. Commissioner Penny Githens commented on the price of sidewalk repairs after payroll advisor Jordan Miller read off the claims docket. Well, I had one comment and um, that when I was going through the, the claims, I noticed that there was one for the maintenance and repair of sidewalks. And I just want to let the public know that for less than the length of a football field uh, to repair and replace a section of sidewalk, it costs basically $14,000. So that's why we don't just jump up and down and quickly put in sidewalks throughout the county. <laughs> GIS coordinator Jared Eichmiller presented the request to purchase more licenses for geographic information system software for county staff in the amount of $7,350. The commissioners approved the request unanimously. The next meeting will be held on May 11th. On May 2nd at the Bloomington Redevelopment Commission meeting, Director of Housing and Neighborhood Development, John Zodi, shared that HAND will host a tenant resource fair on Saturday, May 21st. HAND is uh, going to be hosting a tenant resource fair on Saturday, May 21st. Uh, this is, a, um, as it's named, a resource opportunity for tenants in Bloomington to um, come and get information about different uh, 
services available to them. Um, we'll have some tables and some presentations in the council chamber uh, to uh, just provide information as we uh, are now uh, able to do this in person again um, and hope for a, a nice crowd there. It'll be a Saturday with the farmer's markets going on out front. So uh, hopefully we'll have a good crowd there. Zodi also reminded the public that there are requirements for maintaining lawns to a maximum height of eight inches or less. Um, the uh, other, as a reminder, since we're in a public meeting, just want to remind uh, the residents of Bloomington that uh, grass is growing and we have uh, codes in place that require grass to be eight inches or under uh, if you are uh, mowing and weeds and all that stuff. So we're in that time for our staff to be out looking for um, overgrowth. So just want to remind everybody to keep an eye on the yard. Director of Economic and Sustainable Development, Alex Crowley, presented an agreement with the Buzzkirk Chumley Theater Management Incorporated. He explained that they have worked with them for many years, so they would like to approve a three-year contract. So, as you know, uh, for many years now, we have had uh, BCT management as a managing entity for the Buzzkirk Chumley Theater, BCT. Um, and... Uh, Year after year, we do we kind of renew the agreement, minor tweaks here and there. Um, this is another one of those renewals, except that there are a couple of changes that are material in this case that we wanted to highlight, and and I may overlook some, but the two in particular that I'm thinking of are in the past we've done one year at a time, and we they they've done a great job. We're very pleased with the work. They're doing a really uh, bang up job over there. So we thought rather than just go through this every year, which is painful for everybody involved. We would do a three-year agreement. So this year is a this time it's a three-year agreement through December 2024. City Legal Larry Allen spoke in support of the contract and said that the BCT management partnership has been stable. The board approved the contract unanimously. The next commission will be held on May 16th. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. On March 15th, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb signed SB 263, a bill designed to ensure that biological crime scene evidence is retained properly. The bill is a key step in revealing wrongful convictions and solving cold cases in the Hoosier state. The proper collection, preservation, and storage of physical evidence from a crime scene is imperative when it comes to prosecuting and defending criminal cases. The major advances in technology over the past decades, including the collection of trace amounts of DNA and forensic genealogy, have revolutionized the use of biological evidence in a way that allows investigators to solve cold cases and exonerate the innocent. Until now, Indiana was one of only 15 states without an evidence preservation law, and state evidence custodians, including law enforcement agencies, court clerks, and hospitals 
have faced a lack of guidance on how long to properly preserve biological evidence from collection through post-conviction. The new law will place the Hoosier state on par with neighboring states such as Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Illinois that already have a statutory automatic duty of preservation. And now we have our monthly roundup of prison disturbances as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. On March 29th, two prisoners detained at the Yankton Community Work Center left their work release job site in Yankton, South Dakota, and did not return. One prisoner was recaptured on March 30th, but as of May 1st, no information has been reported about the whereabouts of the other prisoner. On April 16th, two detainees escaped from the Eastern State Hospital in Williamsburg, Virginia, by damaging an interior wall at the facility. One detainee was recaptured approximately 60 miles from the facility on April 17th and is being held at the Chesapeake City Jail. The other detainee was recaptured on Thursday, April 21st in Norfolk, Virginia, and is being held at Norfolk City Jail. Both detainees were mandated to the facility and have been charged with escape. On April 18th, a group of 60 immigrant detainees launched a hunger strike at the Folkson Ice Processing Center in Georgia, according to an outside solidarity group. The ICE detainees came together to protest the indefinite detention they say they experience at the facility. On the third day of the strike, detainees in the neighboring unit joined the protest by staging a sit-in, dragging their mattresses into the common areas, skipping count, and threatening to hunger strike. As a result of the protests, ICE has met with detainees to give them updates on their cases, accelerated cases through the courts, deported some detainees who had been waiting indefinitely for deportation orders, and even released some detainees. In late 2021, Geo Group, the private prison company that operates the facility, signed a contract with Charlton County to expand its facility, tripling its bed count from 780 to 3,018. For more information, follow at ShutdownFIPC on Instagram. On April 18th, three men escaped from the Muskingum County Jail in Ohio after overpowering a guard and stealing his keys. The trio escaped through a bridge that connects the jail to the county courthouse and stole a truck, which they later crashed in a high-speed chase with local police. All three escapees were quickly recaptured. All three waived their right to a trial and pleaded guilty to charges of the escape. One detainee was also charged with breaking and entering as he entered several unoccupied structures while on the lam. Two men escaped from the DeSoto County Jail in Mississippi on April 21st while working in the jail kitchen area. The pair escaped out a door while a delivery was being made. Both men were recaptured about 36 hours later. This was the first escape in 10 years at the facility. At 10.16 p.m. on Friday, April 29th, several prisoners attempted to escape from the Whitley County Detention Center in Williamsburg, Kentucky. The Whitley County Sheriff's Department said there were no reported injuries after law enforcement agencies responded to the event. Allegedly, a prisoner staged a medical emergency by going off insulin, in which guards responding to the emergency were pushed into an interior cell while others attempted to escape. Two prisoners have reportedly been identified with the escape attempt and will be charged, but it was also alleged that more were involved, including several individuals outside the jail. You can find out more at perilouschronicle.com. 
Up next, we have Strike Mike, voices from the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition in light of their strike against Indiana University. We now turn to that segment. Strike Mike. On Sunday, April 10th, a 97.8 affirmative vote by IU graduate workers set into motion the largest indefinite strike Bloomington has seen in decades. Every day that we can, WFHB's Strike Mike will bring you to the front lines of this movement, allowing you to understand the issues and the action through the voices of the participants themselves. Uh, hi, I'm Evan Arnett in History and Philosophy of Science. Uh, so the meeting was petitioned by over 200 faculty. They wanted several major things on the agenda. So they wanted the discussion of hiring and firing power. They wanted to take that back to the departments. They wanted to discuss the kind of conditions for union recognition. Uh, they wanted to deal with the possibility of a, of a no confidence vote. Uh, and then, oh, I forget the, the last item on the, and they wanted to discuss extending the grading deadline by a kind of unilateral decision of the executive committee. So, which is like maybe about 10 people who run the BFC. Uh, several of these were taken off the agenda and then a number of things were solicited, but the two major items still on the agenda that really matter a lot to graduate employees and really matter a lot to faculty. Uh, are a resolution for union resignation and a resolution to regain hiring and firing power in the departments and take this away from the provost. Forget your perfect offering. Forget your perfect offering. Just ring the bells that you can ring. Just ring the bells that you My name's uh, Wes Zabrowski. I'm a SPIA PhD student. I'm a third year. So right now, we've got faculty lined outside of the auditorium here at Indiana University. Uh, and gathered around the fountain is a group of graduate workers who are picketing 
asking the faculty to support them in this upcoming uh, Bloomington Faculty Council meeting. So the faculty have gathered here today and they're going to be discussing, among other issues, the, the union primarily. Uh, and so there's going to be some resolutions on the table and uh, including the things they may discuss are whether or not they have confidence in the provost, uh, especially as the provost has taken a hard line against the union, uh, is willing to threaten graduate students, is threatening to fire graduate students for their participation in our strike, which is for improving our pay, our working conditions, uh, trying to ensure a fair and sustainable wage for graduate workers. And so the faculty have, of course, been understandably upset at the provost for the provost action. So, one of the big things really mobilizing faculty here today is how the administration and the provost have really kind of centralized management of this university. They're here in addition to caring about us because they care about shared governance. And that's kind of a powerful meeting of interests here. Uh, so I think that's really what's driving the large turnout we're seeing today. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Ashley Ewald about how Generation Z influences attitudes on climate change and cultural changes. We turn to Rose for part three of an ongoing interview series. What are some of the groups that you uh sort of do advocacy for some of the issues that you touch upon in your in your writings. You've talked about how Gen Z can affect older generations' perceptions about things like climate change and I presume cultural changes like LGBTQ issues. And you've mentioned immigrants and disabilities. Just tell us a little more about your work in, in those areas. So my, my writing is really about, I do deep research first, and like sometimes it can be very hard for the stuff that I write about, or very touchy topics. I write about social issues, but I also write about self-development. Like for, you know, my other like thought catalog in Teen Inc., I write about cyberbullying, and I write about self-love, but I also write about all the other kind of stuff that has to do with what it's like to have such a big dream, or big goals, to where other people may... I don't know, view that and just kind of like pick on you for it. You know, I, I write about self-love and self-development and sharing my experiences to kind of help guide readers and to be able to find their own potential. But besides from that, I also write, wrote about like COVID and stuff like that and the importance of vaccines, even though it is scary taking a needle to your arm and stuff like that. You know, it's perfectly understandable for people to be afraid of anything that's being injected into you. That's very normal. You know, but I wrote it because there was in a time where it's just like there's just so many people, you know, who may have felt how who may have felt differently about it. I kind of wanted to spread awareness by the research I conducted and share information and spread awareness. And the other stuff I also wrote about when I was 17, and I have also written opinion pieces about college, how to make education more affordable is by going to a college you can afford and to do everything you can to not take on student loans. And that it's okay to not go to a prestigious university or it's okay to not go to your top choice and that college is what you make of it. And so I had written that for a Boston University's newspaper 
And additionally, as well. So after doing that, I wrote about that. I have written about social issues relating to voting as well. And just touching on topics that honestly affect everyone. And hopefully my deep topics that I write about truly show the perspective from a Gen Z, you know, 19-year-old who was an 18-year-old when I wrote some of the stuff and giving it from my perspective of why I feel like society would benefit from wearing masks or having trying to at least trust and research of the COVID vaccine, you know? And so it seems that your orientation is toward constructive things and uh, solutions-oriented rather than kind of belaboring the problems and the conflicts. Do you harbor any resentments, though, for older generations that have kind of dropped the ball on a lot of things and let issues slide and degrade things like climate change? You know, the sense that they haven't haven't done enough for your generation to protect your generation? resentful towards the older generation at all because I think everybody has their own issues and I don't think that like the newest generation should be like resentful for the older generation because the older generation were living in a different time with different worldwide events that were taking place and not every issue that plagues now today society in the 21st century or plagues you know the youngest generation it's not like that issue is supposed to same for the older generation. I think that the older generation has their own space and they have done what they can for their issues in their time. And I think it would be kind of unfair for me to like judge the older generation if I didn't live in that time period where I got to live out through what they lived out through and what they went through during their time period. Because we, as the newest generation, are going through what we're going through an hour time period. I just think that having resentment is not going to get the work done. It pushes people away with different views. It pushes people away with similar views. And I just think that at this point, having resentment towards the younger, the older generation, it's not productive. And we get nowhere by having resent towards other people, whether they're younger or older. And that just causes us younger generation who do resent the older generation to push people away and I just think that we don't need that we really need to come together and be able to find a common ground because we all want the same thing whether you are Republican Democrat independent I hate political parties but whether you are whatever of the political spectrum like we all want the same thing we want our families to succeed we want to make a living you know and I just think that everyone has their own different ways of getting there what plans do you have for your education things that you're studying for your future career? Thank you for asking. I am studying politics and econ right now. And at this private liberal arts college, I'm hoping to develop strong writing and reading skills, the ability to actually do my own research. And like, I've been doing it, but you know what I'm saying, like to really enhance research skills and not just rely on credible news sources for your information but the ability to develop critical thinking skills and to enhance the ability to think for yourself and not have to go all the way this or all the way that. Instead, being able to see both sides and be able to read fast, but take in what you're reading and be able to write articulately and well to the point that when someone can read what you're writing 
or listen to what you're writing to, they're able to really take away the theme that you are trying to portray. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Zero Rose. Kiteline and Strike Mike are produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 